Hey everyone, this is Cameron from Renegade Animation on RenegadePopCulture.com. If you like what we do, please give us a like and a share, and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. We are everywhere. That way, we can keep doing what we love, and that's talking about four turtles with attitude. And now, on with the show. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Renegade Animation on the Renegade Pop Culture Podcast Network. My name is Mike. I'll be your host for this evening. Joining me, as always, is the animation guru himself, Cameron. Howdy, howdy. Today, we have a really fun episode. We are talking about Rise of the TMNT, both the series and the movie that just dropped this weekend on Netflix. Before we really get into the meat of the discussion, let's kind of turn the clock back. So Cameron, when did you first become at least aware of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle franchise? I was born in 1989, so I kind of grew up tangentially while it was on the air during the, like the early 90s and such. So I was able to watch a few episodes on VHS, but that's about it for at least the 80s series and such. When I got older, I was able to actually watch the 2003 show because, you know, it was airing around the same time in the same age range that I would be interested in it. And it was one of the better four kids shows that were on back in the day. I skipped over the 2012 show because I wasn't really interested in movies or TV as much at that point in time. Right when I was starting to write about animated films, I wanted to talk about shows, but I didn't want to talk about like most of the popular ones. I think one of the first inklings of like, oh, I want to talk about this was with the Rise of the TMNT show that we'll talk a little bit about its wonky production and such and it's quote-unquote controversies in just a moment what about you i was born in 92 so i think i completely missed the 87 show when it was like regularly on tv i have like the vaguest memories of the original live action movies i remember those being pretty popular around when i was born kind of like you the one series that was like pitched right at my demographic was the 2003 series which i don't think i saw the whole series i mostly just like caught it whenever it was on saturday mornings i watched the movie turtles forever like dozens of times because i think that was just like kind of the perfect generation bridge between fans of the original series fans the 2003 series and fans of the original comic books that is the movie that low-key inspired the concept of into the spider-verse but comic book crossovers have been around for decades before that i never watched the 2012 series because that was just kind of like what you said my interests were not necessarily in animated tv shows at that time now we are at Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's a show that I missed when it was on the air, but it's always been one that I wanted to watch just because all the clips that I saw at the time, they looked so kinetic and action-packed. It reminded me a lot of, and we'll get into this when we talk about it more, other shows had that similar style. Um, not many. It was like the very beginning of shows that were like getting a new lease on life. This was like the new, like the old guard of new cartoons were coming in. Here were the new guard of like hyperkinetic, fast paced shows. A lot of them done by the same studio, like the same studio that does this show, Glitch Techs, and that Lego Monkey King oh, uh, yeah. show that's on Amazon. All the same studio. It's really easy to know it's them because they have a super distinct style of how they animate everything. And then, of course, go hell in a cage match when the Sakuga decides to drop. So it was like either you got your like Adventure Times and Steven Universes, or you had your kinetic action shows, or you had something like a little in between or varying like types of those kind of shows. So the production company you're referring to is Flying Bark Productions. And 
like you said, they've done work on a lot of titles. On the film side, they did Chippendale Rescue Rangers. Obviously, they worked on The Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. They did something called Maya the Bee, the Golden Orb. Yeah, I know about that. <laughs> Don't um, ask me how I know. I just remember the trailer uploading. It's like, oh, okay, neat. <laughs> I think they're most well known for the triple threat that is Rise, Glitch Tex, and Monkey Kid. That's exactly it. Let's not waste any more time. We're going to talk about this show in a way of like addressing the quote unquote controversies of the show. The oh. things that got a lot of fans riled up, unjustly or not, because, you know, never listen to fan feedback. <laughs> or pick and choose wisely which ones you listen to. Exactly. Um, so let's start with quote-unquote controversy number one, the brothers. As these shows have evolved, they have basically gone a little further every time to start differentiating the brothers from one another like from the 80s show to now you can tell they were going as far as they could or they wanted to or maybe the higher-ups told them to prevented them we don't know but like with the 80s show they were all very basic ralph was sarcastic mikey was the fun-loving dumb one donatello was the smart one leo was the quote-unquote boring leader type they all looked pretty much the same design wise the only reason you could tell who was who was the weapons they used fun fact the the original like comic book covers they all had like the same colored masks i can only assume that the creative choice to give them all distinct colors had to have come from the 87 series right right and the only downside to that was that like if you are colorblind you still couldn't really know who was who. And considering all of the animation mishaps that could happen in an 80s cartoon did happen with TMNT a lot, depending on which episode you're looking at. Oh, yeah. So it that didn't help things. It's kind of like that one Super Mario Brothers Super Show clip where you see Mario and Luigi both wearing red and blue. And it's like, thanks, Mojo. <laughs> then with the 2003 show they all had different shades of green and they were slightly different more, like they were still like refining their personalities Raphael was more the angry loner Mikey was still the fun loving goofball Donatello was a smart one and Leo was the leader not too different though again like if you were colorblind you wouldn't really know who they were or, like, the differences. That's why, like, the live-action movies made sure to go all out with making each of them stand out. Mm -hmm. Especially of, the 2014 one. Yeah, right, right. And CGI 2007 film also did that to a degree. I think that was, like, one of the first times where they're like, we gotta push it further. And the 2012 show did that a little more. Like, you can tell each of the brothers have a very different design. Ralph was a little more bulky and muscular. Mikey had a more childlike look to him. Donatello was taller than the others, while Leonardo was pretty much the same. He's like the character model in a create-a-character mode in a video game, the default look. And then when we get to this new show... Oh, they just went to like how everyone else is like, okay, you can only turn the dial up on the different designs up one. This new show was like, okay, so it's at a six right now. We're going to turn it to 12. <laughs> yeah, accurate. They even went down the route of making the brothers different ages and different turtle species. And I think that was really smart. You could now absolutely unquestionably tell who was who another thing i like about that is the masks are different too right that's exactly correct because donatello wears and Raphael kind of wear like full head-on bandanas with like eye holes cut out while leonardo and michelangelo had different varying just over the eye masks and i wasn't kidding when i said oh they 
changed the species of each turtles because like Raphael is a snapping turtle. Leonardo's a red-eared slider. Donatello is a spiny shop-shell turtle, which they play around with a lot with him wearing that, that steel shell on the back, which makes a lot of sense because, you know, soft-shell turtles are soft. And Michelangelo is a uh, ornate box turtle. I'm fine with this one. I don't get the hubbub about the extreme designs here. They're the same characters. Well, they're the same for the most part. So that was like part one. So let's talk about part two of the four brothers. Raphael was made the leader, at least for the show. I think that's fine. I didn't quite get the controversy around that. I know Leonardo is usually the leader because he's the most self-serious one of the bunch. But it's not like the TMNT shows or films have never had Leonardo and Raphael having moral debates and conflicts with one another of like who gets the job done better. They certainly play around with that in this show. In fact, I'm pretty sure the creators even describe this as a spiritual prequel to the franchise where if you are someone who is watching the first couple episodes and thinking something's not right. That's a feature, not a bug. And we'll get into it more when we get to the movie, but they really kind of make it clear that the turtles are still kind of, for lack of a better term, green with their career. Raphael is the leader only because he's the oldest. So he kind of puts it upon himself to protect his brothers. But by the time we get to the end of the series, it's really funny. The last line in the series is, oh, by the way, Leo, you're the leader. Right, right. It was very interesting because I think the change of power dynamics didn't really bother me. In a lot of ways, they basically gave Leo's personality to Raphael to an extent. Raphael is still kind of like the hot-headed individual, but he takes charge. While Leo is the more cocky, smart aleck of the bunch. And since you have Ben Schwartz, that's going to come with the territory. And not just the fact that it's a blue character. And I don't know if this is actually true, but it feels like something is written in this contract where if the character wears blue apparel, he has to be the voice. Right. It's like Jeffrey Combs playing both the Scarecrow and Batman, the animated series and the Rat King in the 2012 TMNT show where he has to play the most utterly creepy version of a villainous character from a long running franchise donatello gets his more technology savvy personality basically and doubles down with it he's a total technophile and has like strong doubts against like supernatural and magic and such even to the point when everyone else gets mystical magical weapons he still stays with his technology upgraded bow staff something i found kind of funny in hindsight so donatello is voiced by josh brenner who is from silicon valley it's very funny because he's also that one character from ducktales uh mark beaks i hear that now like every time i hear like his dialogue is like oh wait that makes a lot more sense right right and michelangelo he's kind of like shaggy in a lot of ways from scooby-doo he's the one who gets changed the least he's more wide-eyed optimistic than party surfer dude but he's still the same fun-loving goofball of the group even character design wise like he is the most consistent across the various iterations but i guess the one difference at least that i've noticed is in this version he's a lot more empathetic he's the heart of the group and i think that's like fine i the four turtles still have a lot of great dynamics and there are able to like break them up a little more this time around like in one of the early episodes donatello and michelangelo are with one another more so than like the others and then leonardo and Raphael are in one episode or vice versa and such and it helps that they are able to stand on their own in their own way so it's not like in the 1980s version where they just kept them together like glue <laughs> they didn't have them separate a whole lot and if they did it was like for one moment 
And then they all had to be together. That's actually something I've really liked about this show. They really play around with like different combinations of characters. And I'm sure this is either controversy number three or number four. But some of my favorite episodes are the team ups between April O'Neil and Splinter. Yeah. So speaking of, let's move on to quote unquote controversy number two. April, Splinter, and the other side characters. So April is like a high school slash college student. High school. She's not a journalist, though in the movie they bring that one part up. But it's not really a main part of her character. She already knows the Turtles at the beginning of the show. And she's a lot more proactive with the Turtles. She's always fighting alongside them and such and being more a driving force alongside the Turtles. She's not just a damsel in distress or, oh, she just happens to... Well, no, that was her kind of big problem for a lot of the run of the franchise. She had a character and personality, but she was mostly the damsel in distress, which is why it's a lot of fun with, like, the more recent incarnations where she's actually, like, hanging out with the Turtles more or she's doing something, or in this case, she's fighting alongside them. And I also like how she's closer in age to the Turtles, too. Like, right. I think in this show, she's probably, like, 16 or 17, which would make more sense than a 20-something news reporter hanging hanging around with a bunch of teenagers. Well, it was interesting because April was only a reporter in, like, one show, and that was the 1987 show. She was a tech intern at Stockman Labs in the 2003 show. And then she was a teenager whose father was a scientist in the 2012 show. It's interesting that so many people still see her as a reporter, but she was only the reporter for like one third of like the entire franchise. That shows how much older generations still kind of cling on to what they think is the original version of these characters. Right, right. And now let's talk about the other major change. Splinter. I get the sort of pseudo upset. His design is way different from his previous incarnations where they mostly stayed the same. The 2012 show probably had the most stoic looking Splinter, while the others played up the more like old rat aspect of the character. This new one is more of like the fun uncle or like the fun father figure version. And he is definitely lazier to some degree. He watches a lot of TV. He's a lot sassier than other incarnations, even though some of the incarnations of Splinter were very much like, hey, they'll have a good joke or line here and there. This one's more cartoony. And while he does have his more sage and wisdom sides of him, he's more like a, he's like a cartoonish drill sergeant at points. Like, I love Eric Bauza, who plays this version of the character. And I had fun of him. I get the, whoa, this is like super different. It's like the other side of the scale of what Splinter should be as the character. Unlike the other controversies, while I don't agree with this one being a bad thing, I get that this is kind of a big departure, not just from a design perspective. Personality-wise, he is different. Kind of reminds me at some points of Uncle Iroh from Avatar. Oh, uh, absolutely. It's probably like the, the round face and head design, but also just he's clearly more, uh, more of a uh, jovial personality, except when it's time to be serious. As far as like his backstory, they go in a pretty interesting direction with Splinter's backstory and how the Turtles become who they are. Instead of doing like the whole Hamato Yoshi having a rivalry and situation with the Foot Clan, instead, the whole origin was that Splinter used to be a Jackie Chan-style action kung fu star. Then Baron Draxum, the pseudo-antagonist of the first season of the show, who's voiced by John Cena in season one and Roger Craig Smith in season two, who is this warrior yokai alchemist who 
was infusing animal DNA with humans and, and happens to get Splinter's original human form, who was a uh, blue jitsu with his ever iconic action freight, like catch line hot soup like he of course combined him with a rat and then the turtles who were just kind of normal turtles that draxon was going to mutate just get the ooze on them and then they turn humanoid and such i'm fine with this change because we already have three versions where splinter was supposedly killed by the foot clan and yet they end up in the sewers and they are actually okay if they were going to do something different, I feel like a shakeup in the origin storytelling was going to be needed. Agreed. And also, it kind of gives Splinter more of an arc when you start him off in this particular direction. Because one of the best episodes of the series comes later when the Turtles enter into Splinter's mind in order to find how to defeat Shredder. Shredder in this series is, oh boy. Well, we'll get to that in a moment because he's the last character I want to talk about. Because now we kind of have to talk about another elephant in the room of changes. The villains. They pretty much start from the ground up with all new villains. They have a few returning ones to some degree like they don't have Baxter Stockman they have a kid version Baxter Stockboy who works at his parents grocery store who is more tech savvy and like a YouTube content creator as well a very different take on the character though I don't know it seems kind of realistic for him to be kind of the worst thing ever since a lot of YouTube influencers are kind of the worst thing ever (laughs) <laughs> you're not wrong so that means they don't have like bebop and rocksteady they don't have the normal returning mutants they have the purple dragons but they are more of like a teen hacker group than a uh, street gang like how the 2000 series was and they do have the krang but we'll get to that in when we get to the movie but for the most part all new mutants. This includes, you know, Baron Draxon, who we just talked about, who is a yokai, and they introduce like a new organization of villains, the yokai that are living among the humans in New York City. Which I think is a really cool idea. The idea of like of yokai as the main antagonistic force and also a sort of underground civilization they refer to as the hidden city. Okay, so new mutants and such. So does that mean the Foot Clan's not in this one? No, but they take the Foot Clan and they basically turn them into a more magic-based cult. They are still ninjas to a degree, but instead of like having a unlimited amount of foot soldiers, they make them out of origami. The two that run the Foot Clan until the revival of Shredder, are the Foot Lieutenant and the Foot Brute, who are voiced by Rob Paulson and Maurice Lamar. I'm fine with that. It's Like I said, if everything was going to change about this show, then this needed to change also. Because for the most part, like the Foot Clan was always Shredder's main organization, but it was like Batman has Wayne Industries or Wayne Tech or whatever. It's like... This would be like the the public eye company while it would mostly go into also funding his evil ninja stuff. Right. But here it's like, it's a cult. That's really what it is. Even like when they were doing the whole enrollment process of becoming one with the Foot Clan it is pretty cultish. Though it was a lot of fun to see Rob Paulson and Maurice Lamar working together again. Oh, yeah. When the Foot Clan is introduced, they're working behind Foot Shack. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Not the most subtle, but it's also probably like the most hiding in plain sight they will ever do Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the show. Even more so than like the 80s show where they would have like the Foot Ninjas working actual jobs, which is funny, but it's also like, come on, man. 
<laughs> oh, speaking of which, I forgot to mention a running gag that really is only in the first season and they drop it pretty early. But the fact that, that April has like all these different odd jobs in her first couple episodes, I thought was like a nice, funny little gag. I love that she accidentally falls for one of the traps when they were trying to catch the Foot Clan. She's like, hi, I'm here for the end. Oh, no. <laughs> for the paper store. So in terms of villains... It's a mix. You got the yokai, you got the tech-savvy purple dragons, and then the mutants, which there aren't many of them, but they only have a few of them that are, like, reoccurring. You have, like, the pig mutant Meat Sweats, who's voiced by John Lydon. This voice cast, by the way, is wild. Like, of how many big names they were able to get. Then they have, like, this robot Five Nights at Freddy's Chuck E. Cheese nightmare monstrosity named Alberto, voiced by Tom Kinney, a magic-based hippo magician named Hypnopotamus, who's voiced by Rice Darby. I think my favorite is Warren Stone, voiced by John Michael Higgins. Yes, the joke villain of the bunch. He's saying, he's like, I am the most important villain to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, even though they're always like, who are you? It's like, new phone, who this? (laughs) And they do have a, like, the Foot Clan does have a foot recruiter who's voiced by Zelda Williams, who is like the overzealous person who wants to be officially part of the Foot Clan, but is always held back because of her bombastic attitude. But she's very entertaining because Zelda Williams is great at her role. Oh, yeah, she's awesome. The animation of all her wild expressions makes me laugh every single time. Then we also have some other villains that kind of come in and out of the scene with Repo Mantis, who's voiced by Fred Tadashior. Then a Ghost Bear, who's voiced by our man Jorge Gutierrez. Hell yeah. And then you have some one-off villains like Minotaur, who's voiced by the ever-amazing Cree Summers. And then there's uh, the Bellhop Bullhop who's voiced by Dave Foley. You know, he's uh, he was Flick from A Bug's Life. And then, of course, there's uh, Big Mama, who's voiced by, uh, oh, what's her name? Lena Headey. From Game of Thrones and such. Which I think that's very amusing. She just played a campier version of her despicable character from Game of Thrones. <laughs> and then there's, like, other ones, like the Prairie Dog, Honey Badger, Groundhog, Rock Band Group, who are voiced by... Elizabeth Daly and Betsy Sodaro. And then there's the dynamic duo of like the two crab mutants who are voiced by Paul Shear and Jason Manzoukas. It was funny. It took me a while to realize that Jason Manzoukas was in the show because I thought like, is that him? Because I feel like I hear his voice. But then I was like, no, that can't be him. And then it turns out to be him. I had the opposite where I knew that was Jason Manzoukas immediately. It was Paul Shear that I didn't recognize at first. How many times are we going to watch an animated show where Paul Shear and Jason Manzoukas are there, but not uh, June Diane Rayfield to have a how-did-this-get-made reunion? I'm just saying, you're always so close. <laughs> I think we have to talk about the best villain, quote-unquote, Todd, voiced by Thurb Van Orman, a.k.a. Flapjack himself. I love Todd. Todd is great. I love how he's this overly chipper, wide-eyed, innocent mutant who's not really there to foil the plans of the Turtles or anyone else. He wants to give you some of his internet-famous lemonade and then help out some puppies. And I love how, like, when all the villains get together, like, for the first time, they're just like, oh, yeah, man, Todd's the most dangerous one of them all. And it's like, Okay, then. And then it turns out like, oh, wow, Todd is actually the most dangerous one of them all. (laughs) Well, at points. And unfortunately, like as we go into like season two, they start introducing other villains or like near the end of season one as well. Like they had this plant monster, which I was thinking was like a like a take on the plant villain from the 2012 version. And then they like the second season also has like that Komodo dragon karate kid villain going on, but but they don't do much with it. You see them once, and then that's it. Like, especially that dentist poacher. Oh, yeah. Who's, I think, voiced by Jim Rash. It's a shame because, like, I like the idea of a lot of these characters, but they tend to focus mostly on, like, meat sweats, 
or Hypnopotamus and Warren Stone, who they make kind of have a bromance with one another, which is cute, but it's also like, okay, I want to see some of the other characters. The only other villain side character that I can think of that gets a lot of development out of everyone there is Senor Hueso, the uh, skeleton who's voiced by Eric Bauza, because it's like he's running a supernatural pizza restaurant and also has a pirate brother who's basically made of flesh and just flesh. It's really freaking gross at, at certain points. <laughs> yeah, his, his design is, um, it is something. Just think of like a bunch of human skin flopping around with no bones, but are still able to be like stand up straight. It's weird and funny as hell. I do like the episodes where, where Leo and, and Mikey embark on adventures with with that character. That's really it for the villains. Well, except for the last one, which, you know, controversy number four, quote unquote. Shredder and the overall story, because this is what we'll talk about more in story structure and how we think about how the overall experience was. Shredder this time is not leader of the Foot Clan, hiding as a tech mogul in plain sight. He's a mystical entity uh, like someone who traded his soul to get this super powerful armor to protect his people and then became an evil demonic entity that got sealed away and in the first season it slowly starts building up and adding little details of the foot clan is looking for the pieces of the shredder armor that baron draxum uses in the season one finale what did you think about their take with Shredder? Because I found it very interesting. I think he's not on screen a whole lot. He's more like the legends that you hear until you actually see him. It's like the, all the big talk before Godzilla shows up in a Godzilla movie. Except the difference is that this time it works. I know most people associate Shredder as like the Joker to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like he has more of a presence, especially in the 1987 series. But I like when Shredder is more of like a bigger antagonist and not just like a person that the turtles need to stop every week. I kind of liked how they were really building him up as like kind of a big deal. I think that's what was interesting because if you want to be technical about it, the actual Shredder doesn't show up until the end of the second season. Not Draxum inside the armor. Actually, the armor screws over Baron Draxum in the end of it all. Then the armor basically gains sentience after Big Mama loses control of him. And... Yeah, I guess you can complain. There's not much to him. But the thing is, like, he's like a world-ending threat. It works. It's effective for who he is as a an opponent, a threat. And, like, that sequence that made the Twitter rounds, like, two years ago when Draxum has that orb and he's, like, running for his life away from getting killed by the Shredder, who we don't know is a Shredder at that point, but is the shadow champion... And this all that great animation, but also just the billions of dollars of property damage <laughs> the yep. Shredder does. Like, good Lord, buildings just fall apart, get sliced in half. This is probably the strongest version of the Shredder that we've seen. The Shredder was always an interesting threat, I guess. It's maybe just because he was held back in the original 80s show. He wasn't really a threat then the 2003 show made him a like one of those krang aliens that they couldn't use the word krang on i didn't get too far with the 2012 show but it seems like they kind of went back to basics but actually made him intimidating in that version and here it's just like i am pure terror and power mm -hmm. now with the overall story like they do a mix up of episodic stories like either done in like 30 minute or two 12 minute episodes. And then either like during the halfway point or near the end, they start adding more story based episodes. How did you think they handled them? I thought they handled this really well. I think if you're going to do ser like serialized storytelling for a show that 
still wants to be a comedy, this is the right approach to take. It's kind of like what Amphibia does, where their story is a little bit more serialized, but they still divide up episodes into two 11-minute segments. Actually, what this reminds me of more, the 2000s Teen Titans series, where there was a story, but most of the season was like the sillier kind of stories. I think tonally, this takes a similar approach. Right, right. I agree. It's definitely more comedy-driven. I think that was just a aftermath of when Teen Titans Go became popular. They definitely focused more on like really high-octane humor. More just kind of zany, energetic comedy. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, you know, that's comedy. Not every joke lands. But I did get a kick of how expressive these characters were. And I think that helped with the animation and such. But it does take its time to actually let the characters breathe, let them grow as as individuals. Like, at first I was thinking, like, man, Donatello is getting a little annoying with his, like, I love technology. Technology's great. It's amazing. But then they introduce it as a, like, he's afraid that if he believes in magic and such then nobody will think he's useful because he's a tech guy. That's why people rely on him. They're able to, but I will say, I do think it was a little uneven with how, like when they decided to do story stuff and when they decided to do goofy stuff because, oh man, they're bringing up pieces of the shredder. And if the turtles know that, shouldn't they focus more on that, I guess? I mean, of course, in hindsight, we know what's going to happen with this show and all the behind the scenes stuff that's hurt the show in the long run. I think that's really it's one issue. It's pieces are better than the whole. Like the whole is not as good as the sum of its parts. I think the show could have been better structured watching each episode. I had so much fun watching each episode that it's not until you look at it like holistically that you start to see the flaws. An example, when they get into season two, they start introducing a bunch of new villains and introduce a lot of very important either character dynamics or story beats. And they are either quickly solved or they are never brought up again. Which, you know, when you find out that they were going to have a full 26 episode second season, but then Nickelodeon cut that in half... It explains why there's like all these episodic set pieces and then hits the ground running with the finale and such, which is a shame because, you know, like everyone has said, like the guy who created Chowder and Gindy Tartakovsky, you have to let a show breathe. You have to let a show find its foot because, you know, Nickelodeon, I like to say they're getting better but you know they canceled that it's pony show and then are also dabbling in nfts so i can't say it's getting better there but you know that was like like the most infamous thing about nickelodeon was there you better be a freaking hit like spongebob or else we're canceling your show even spongebob right now is like in a weird place right now season 13 apparently took like two years to finish wow which was Interesting. Going back to this show, I described this off air. Season two can best be described as you're on a road trip to your favorite theme park and like you start to fall asleep and you wake up and bam, you're right there. You reach the destination. It's very much like that. You're just like, oh, episodic silliness and shenanigans ensue. And then bam, world ending cataclysmic events. Everyone in New York vanishes There's a huge tournament happening with Big Mama. And then the Shredder shows up. And that's it. (laughs) It's a shame that the show got hindered like that. Because you could easily have seen it build up to that point. Like, we saw that the Shredder armor gets, like, taken away by Big Mama As far as we know, it's not going to do anything with it until, you know, we saw what happens. And it's not like the first season never built up to the Shredder armor. There were always these little details in the backgrounds. Or they would show, like, the Foot Clan saying, like, hey, we found this next piece. 
or one of the most fun little details to find the teapot in season one. Oh yeah. Yes. It's not the most like the best told show, but it's a lot more satisfying than from what I remember of the 2003 show, where it's just, it turned from teenage mutant Ninja turtles to teenage mutant Ninja turtles in space. <laughs> if you know, you know, but a lot of this could and is forgiven with this animation, this might be the most action-packed version of the Turtles that we've yeah. seen. And the 2003 show was already pretty violent, all things considered, for a show that was running on the four kids network and such. Like, the only reason they got away with a decapitation was because Shredder was an alien. <laughs> like, the original TMNT show was, quote-unquote, violent. But a lot of that was because, like, they got away with it because the Foot Ninja were all robots. You know, the easiest way to get around violence in TV shows. Naturally. (laughs) But this one, it's just dynamic. It's got very much a Studio Trigger or Gynax level of action kineticness to it. It's a visually stunning show because even like the 2003 and the 2012 show never had action this dynamic. This show, you can tell that they were inspired by anime, (laughs) but specifically the works from like Studio Trigger and, you know, shows like Kill a Kill, Gurren Lagann, even a little bit of Penny and Stocking, the way the characters are designed and the chaos of it all. You can tell they were going for a very specific style and it really works for these characters. And it's also a musical in two episodes. Well, partially a musical. They have different musical numbers. There's one where Baron Draxum reveals his origin story of how he made the Turtles. And they do a fun take on a Pirates of Penzance song. I am the very model of a modern major general. That's how they set up the whole song. And then there's a whole musical sequence during the Snow Day episode. It's a lot of fun. It's a very high octane show. There's a lot to like about it. And there are those episodes where they have April and Splinter team up. And that was a, it's one of those things where it's like, I didn't know I wanted this. Here it is. And I love it. <laughs> overall like it has its rough areas but i think the overall show is good like i don't think there's like an actual bad version of the tmnt shows like now the movies definitely absolutely you can point out a bad version or a bad movie but here with the shows they're all pretty good in their own regards like yeah. for what they are there's only one bad Ninja Turtles series, but we literally never talk about that. Oh, are you talking about that live action one that was like on around the same time as Power Rangers or something? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, the one that had the first female turtle and was like one of the biggest disasters that the comics worked very hard to rewrite into a much better character. <laughs> yeah outside of that each iteration of the turtles have something unique to offer but what i love about rise is it kind of brings like all of those elements together and still puts a fresh spin on the material to give us something truly unique both visually and and the writing is very fresh. It's very modern. I believe it's something that like all Turtles fans can enjoy or people who are new to the franchise. It's got its own flair, and that's what you want to look for with these kind of things. You never want to be part of a long-running franchise and be like, well, this is just a worse version of, of this version of the show. And it's you can tell them all apart. They all have different energies to them. And that's cool. It's a shame that this one got screwed over mostly by the fans and also the executives at Nickelodeon. Because again, you got to let the shows breathe. You got to give them a chance. You can't just be like, oh, it's been two seasons and you're not making me a billion dollars. Canceled. (laughs) But we were thankful and lucky enough to get a movie going to Netflix. 
And unfortunately, it's not going to Paramount Plus where the actual entire show is. Ugh, <laughs> I'm still kind of grumpy about that. I like I know we talked about it when we first talked about the trailer and such, but it's such a chore that the entire show is on Paramount Plus. But if you want to watch the movie, you have to have Netflix. Yeah, I'll only give that the benefit of the doubt in that when this movie was in development, this was before Paramount Plus was even a concept. Right. That's the only real logical explanation for why one is one place and the other the other. But I'm just glad that we have this movie. It's here and it's awesome. Yeah, this movie was like originally announced like way back in i think either like 2019 or something and then something about this year has brought out the a-game people behind these shows that are making these movie versions of these shows like we had the bob's burgers movie we had the beavis and butthead do the universe with the new beavis and butthead show on paramount plus and now we have the rise of the tmnt movie which is set past the show and has a, a future Casey Jones coming back into the past to tell the turtles, Hey, we got to get this thing before the foot clan does so, and not let the crane take over. And at this point with the turtles, they have their mystical magic powers. Even Donnie has his own trademarked mystical technology aspect to him. And the other major change within the franchise of at least the familiar aspects of the franchise, the Krang are actually threats, like not just with the robots and such, but actual like damage dealers. They're slimier and they're more, I guess like the symbiotes from Marvel are like the closest comparison, at least for this version, because anything they touch, like just take over. Right, right. Because for the longest time, the Krang basically stayed the same. They were these small little jellyfish-like aliens that used robot bodies to do all of their work. And for this one, they upped the size of the Krang to basically human size, or a little taller, or a little bigger than that. And we're introduced to Krang 1, Krang 2, and Krang 3. The first one is voiced by Jim Peary, who was Amity's father from... uh, Owl House, Alador Blight. Crane 2 is voiced by Tokes Ola Gundoye, who she's appeared in a lot of things. We would actually know her. She was in like Beavis and Butthead Do the Universe as different characters. She was one of the main political heads in Arcane. She's Mrs. Beakley on, on DuckTales. The third one, I guess this is a polar joke from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Sir, who will not ha- be appearing in this movie. No. <laughs> no, it's just he has no name. He has no voice. You see, like, I joked off the air that this was basically a shonen franchise film because you have your main pure, unadulterated evil one. You have your sadistic killer. And then you have the villain who has no lines. And it's just the quiet type, the strong, quiet threats. They really don't mess around. I think that's the one thing I do love about the Krang in this one. While they are not the most deep villains, they're probably the most dangerous villains of this iteration of the Turtles franchise. This is the one movie that has like a body count. It's amazing how violent and dark this movie actually gets. Like people are dying left and right in this movie. And the Turtles get their asses handed to them. Like I want to say at least four to five times before they're actually defeated. Well, a lot of that is because they go through the good old video game system of they get all their powers taken. (laughs) It's like every time you start a new Metroid game, you don't get all your fancy upgrades from the last game. You have to start from square one with mystic powers and such being taken away very early on because that's how they handle that situation because I'm sure people have been like, okay, why are these guys a threat? But even with the powers the Krang were still able to go toe-to-toe with them. And I like that. Like, they were more than just the squishy little jello bodies stuck inside a robot torso. Now, you don't see much of the other villains in this film. You, you'll you see Hypnopotamus and Warren Stone, 
But they're in it for like five minutes and then they just bamf out of its existence. Their role in this movie is is really just to, you know, to set up the opening action scene and to also kickstart Leonardo's arc, which is pretty much his origin for becoming more of the leader. Right, right. No, it was interesting because I remember reading that they took out a lot of the characters, like the Hidden City is never mentioned, the Yokai are never mentioned, and the other villains are never mentioned because they wanted to make sure that anyone who wanted to jump in into this movie could if they didn't watch the show. And considering that the entire show is on one other streaming service, it makes sense, even though I wish this Paramount bought this from Netflix to put it on their service or something like that. Just so it's all in one place. They also do upgrade the animation. It looks really good for what it is. Like I'm sure they're sort of just like a slightly higher budgeted TV movie, but I'm sure this would have played well out of theater. I would have loved to see this in theaters. While it may not be like too significant an upgrade, it still feels like a movie compared to other sort of, direct-to-video feature films that are like based on animated series this one looks and feels like the movie this was coming out around the same time as those uh, nickelodeon tv specials like the one for rocco's modern life and invader zim and basically they did what the director of the recent prey film did by the way go see prey that's an amazing movie they made the film to be like seen on as big of a screen as possible in that regards like they made it feel big they made it feel cinematic they didn't just make a three-part episode which, boy howdy, the 2003 show was very adamant about having multi-part storylines. Oh my gosh, you couldn't go like two episodes before they hit up another five-part story arc. <laughs> and like they do bring the stakes of this. I mean, not just because the world is doomed once the Krang take over and such, but the drama is handled well like Raphael is kind of sick and tired of Leo's arrogance of not taking things seriously and it doesn't help when Casey Jones shows up and is like you're the amazing you're my sensei in the future and Leo's is like hell yeah I'm awesome and luckily the film is smart enough to call out Leo's brazen actions and such and not really thinking things through a good thing that Casey who kind of gives him that you know slap in the face of you're not my mentor you're this guy the turtles get separated quite a lot throughout this whole thing like Raph well spoilers ahead Raph gets taken by the Krang and turned into like this freaking body horror henchman for the Krang then like Donatello and Michelangelo get separated from Leonardo and Casey and we get more April and Splinter team-ups, which had one of my favorite gags when they're fighting Crane 2. And April throws a book at the Crane, and it says, so, you're running out of time. <laughs> <laughs> I love those visual gags. There were quite a few of them in this whole incarnation of the, sh of the show, and I loved it for that. And, like, it gets dark, like, this has, like, a slightly more adult shade to it all, if that makes sense. Like, you see people die on screen. You see Michelangelo sacrifice himself to open up the portal from the future to go to the past. It could be a fairly intense movie if the kids aren't ready for it. And just tons of horrific imagery also. Like, seeing all the Foot Clan get, well, like you said, symbioted is very creepy. It's like, this is really intense for a, at a movie that's aimed for a young audience. I imagine as far as the tone goes, this is probably more for like, if this was given like a rating, it seems more like a PG-13 than like, than a PG, even though I'm sure kids can watch it just fine. It's just, there are some more intense moments than you normally see on the series. They do have some very good dramatic moments also with... Leonardo finally just realizing, like, I gotta do this, man. I gotta own up to my mistakes and stand up as a leader. So we gotta save the day, save Raph, take down the Krang and such. Though I think one of my more favorite 
parts of the movie is when Michelangelo and Donatello are working together. Like I love when they're in the turtle tank and they're just like dangers imminent. And Michelangelo is like, Oh, thank God we have an imminent amount of time. And then Donnie's like, that means very little time, Mikey. And then when they have to do like, they take care of that uh, one crank who doesn't talk, man, how do we work this control system? It's just a bunch of ooey gooey discussing this. The look on Donatello's face when he realizes when he put two and two together, oh. just the tiniest shrunken eyes, and he's like, "Oh God!" <laughs> They're like, I, "What? I know what I have to do. What? Oh, oh God, no, no! It's like your worst nightmare. I know it is. You can do it. I know." <laughs> it's just like this whole hesitation of getting absorbed by the goop. <laughs> and then once he does get absorbed, he gets one of the best lines, like. Guys, I am the spaceship. Oh, it's a great line. It's a lot of fun jokes and dialogue gags. Like, I love when a hypnopotamus and Warren Stone encountered a Foot Clan. It's like, that's right. We're partners. By the way, I actually, just on the down low, are we actually partners or something like that? <laughs> and the Foot Clan is just like, oh, my God. <laughs> or, like, when Splinter's like, it's like, you guys should be like ninjas respectful and quiet <laughs> you like, you're ruining my show it's a very delightful bag of jokes and such they find a way to make it all work and but man like it was going to be tough to beat that final fight scene in the series finale like with against threader they do a good job of upping that ante like these crank like even when they get into their mech suits are still like one wrong slip up and they're dead. Yeah. <laughs> like when they get their powers back and they take down Krang one, it's a lot of fun. A lot of like major Dragon Ball Z vibes, which is like crashing and going through buildings, basically throwing buildings at one another. I love the action in this movie. Just when you think like there's no way they can top what they did before, they do just that. They find ways to top like the previous action beats with some insane stuff in the third act like it's also very touching they were able to give you very like sentimental moments like when leo is fighting against crane one after he sent raft to help save the other two and he's telling casey like hey when i go through the portal you gotta close it and it's got a very like big hero six the separation with baymax kind of feel to it Oh, yeah. I was kind of getting those vibes, too. And then, like, Mikey being told, like, like I'm told I'm the best mystic warrior in the future, constantly doing it, and then he does it, and it's like, oh, it's disintegrating his body. But then the Donatello and Raphael team up and make sure he gets the portal open. And the most, like, satisfying, like, psych move of, like, they get Leonardo out of the prison realm michelangelo is just like psych and then closes the portal right when the crane was about to go through it i'm only disappointed that they didn't end that scene with you got portal chopped oh yeah <laughs> portal chop i like that maybe that's my new catchphrase hey you've been portal chopped <laughs> love that little joke at the beginning as much as they do like set up hey you don't have to watch the show to watch this movie. It still has enough elements to where you do need to watch the show first. In that regard, it reminds me a little bit of Turtles Forever, where you don't necessarily have to have seen all of the 2003 series to enjoy it. It would help just to kind of get a feel for these specific versions of the characters. That's kind of the same thing I would say about this movie. Like story-wise, you're not going to be lost if you haven't seen the series, but emotionally your experience is enhanced because you have 39 episodes of character development and backstory to really understand the emotional arcs for these characters. As much as I do like this version of Casey Jones, who's voiced by Haley Joel Osment, in this incarnation of the character, he's not the most interesting. Like, he's the guy who keeps the plot going. He's the one who goes back in time and finds the turtles. And, like, I guess it's just interesting because this is the first time we see Casey Jones. 
whole. Like with the show, there was Cassandra Jones, and then you had this delightful gag at the end where they're like, "Hey, look, Cassandra's kicking butt and taking names." And then Casey goes like, "That's my mom." And then Donatello's like, well, there goes the space-time continuum. <laughs> <laughs> and it seemed like he got tossed around a lot, more so than he was actually, like, doing hits, like, against the villains, I guess. Like, I found him to be the weakest part of the movie. At best, he's, like, he's the John Connor of the movie. He really only has one objective. Actually, no, I think he'd be more of, like, the Kyle Reese where he's oh, yeah. the one who goes back in time, warns the characters of the threat, but he's not really an active participant the way, say, Trunks from the Cell Saga of DBZ was. And that's honestly what I was kind of expecting this character to be. And hopefully the next iteration of the Turtles kind of gives a better of this character, but I liked him well enough for the role he was given. I just kind of expected a little bit more. That was a big thing about the show. There was no Casey Jones to bounce off of the Turtles and such. It was basically April and then her friend. And that was really it in terms of like other characters who would come in to help from time to time. Speaking of omissions, it just hit me that one pretty big missed opportunity for the series was not including Isaki Yojimbo. If it's because of rights or because of that, you know, that Netflix series that we watched a couple months back, I would understand if there was like, you know, some sort of like rights dispute, but I don't know. Usagi Yojimbo seems just as important to the Turtles mythology as his own mythology. Uh, now I kind of want to see an Usagi Yojimbo series done by this same studio and team at the very least i want to see some fan art of the character in this art style but in general i really like the show it's not my favorite show from 2018 but it's definitely one of the most fun action shows of recent years and this movie is just another really fun movie based off of a tv show entry it's wild how we've gotten pretty much three good ones in a row as far as like action shows rise definitely is in the top 10 for like this past decade if we're just comparing it to the franchise i would say i would say rut is my favorite second favorite would probably be 2003 and one of these days I'll go back and watch the 2012 just just to experience a little taste. And the movie is awesome. I would recommend this to anyone, be it hardcore Turtles fans, casual Turtles fans, or just people who are new to the franchise and just want kind of the best representation of these characters. I would say give this a watch. Or at the very least, can we get a little mini series based off of Todd? yes <laughs> we need more todd i know uh oh, such a surprise character of the show loved him so for my recommendation i would like to bring up a show that got released around the same time as like as a lot of really good action stuff recently like it, it came out the same day as the netflix south korean action film carter the Hulu film Prey. This week alone had like a lot of good action-packed stuff. And the one I want to recommend is the Netflix series Super Giant Robot Brothers. This was a CGI series that got a lot of notoriety because of how it was made. Mostly because it was handled by Real Effects Entertainment, you know, the Book of Life team and Scoob. R.I.P. Scoob Holiday Haunt. Anyway, how they handled the animation was they did motion capture, but they already had the pre-made assets for the characters and such. So they called it real-time animation, where they would do and shoot scenes and sequences and already have like the characters all set and made. So they could just do the shots that they needed to as they were like filming it and then of course like a good animation studio not the one that made x-arm they had the animators go back through the footage and then polish it up 
and do all the little touches and animated details that bring these characters to life. It's a lot of fun. It's a very straightforward show. It's definitely made for a younger audience in mind, though it has enough of an edge for older audiences to enjoy. And it does have a compelling mystery about like the creator of these robots and the fate of her parents. And the villains are these delightful alien entities that are that send like giant monsters to Earth to destroy it and such. So it's all up to the super giant robot brothers. The both of the giant robots have different personalities to them. Shiny, the, the spherical red one is voiced by Eric Lopez, who is Blue Beetle and Young Justice. Oh, nice. And Chris Diamantopoulos is Thunder, the more self-serious, like, upgraded, modern-looking robot. Got a great kinetic energy, like Rise of the TMNT does. And you could barely tell that it has motion capture. It's I love that we have this in that Battle Kitty show that was on Netflix earlier this year, where they took the CGI and did something very indie video game-ish with it. Were those both done by Unreal Engine? Yes. It was interesting to also see Unreal Engine used and not be like one of those ugly as heck, we put Sonic in a Unreal Engine world and it's like, well, congrats, it looks terrible. (laughs) This one, it's like, you can tell everything is low poly. It's like if they took the animation style of City of Ghosts and put it into a mech action show. It's that kind of mentality to the animation. Just go watch it. It's great. I'm very much looking forward to catching up with that one. Because I remember when we talked about the trailer a while back, I really got into the the style and just just the story with, the, with all these characters. It, it seems like a show that I would really love. So my recommendation is going back to sort of the influences of Rise of the TMNT, I kind of have to talk about Gurren Lagann again, just because you want to go back and and where a lot of those anime influences come from. It's another mech show. Both of our recommendations are mech anime. 26 episodes, it's not that long of a binge. It's one of those shows that I've just really grown to love, and I just want more people to experience probably one of the best modern mech anime of the past like 20 years and speaking of anime that's where we are next time the next two episodes are the summer anime 2022 recap this is gonna be interesting we're taking a slightly different approach to how we do things this time hopefully it's it's not as bad as the last two summers now we'll just have to see i've talked a little bit about being not fully impressed but so far i haven't hit something as bad as a jibiate or a etatin deities so uh take with that as you will (laughs) all right but until then cameron where can everyone find you online you can find me on twitter at cams i view i have my own website called cams where I review animated films and shows from around the world called The Other Side of Animation. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash view. If you like my work, send some support my way in some way, shape, or form. That's one way to do it. And you guys can find me on Twitter at CaptainK42. You can check out my quick thoughts on letterbox.com slash CoachK42. And you can find me in all the various Facebook groups just at my name. You can check out Renegade Pop Culture on Facebook and Twitter at Ren Pop Culture. We're also on YouTube. You can find us on Podchaser and the Banana Meter. Listen to all of our podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. And last but not least, everything can be found at RenegadePopCulture.com. In escape, so do we. That'll do it for this episode of Renegade Animation. We will catch you guys later. Peace out.